Our text is a short gospel lesson just read from John chapter 14. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It's hours before his arrest. It is the night before his death. And as that darkness closes in, there's a series of grim revelations that distress the already confused disciples. Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of them. And it hits them like a sort of shock. And Jesus, who was the center of their lives, right, for whom they left everything. They didn't metaphorically leave everything for Jesus. They didn't spiritually leave everything. They left their jobs, their houses, their wives, their children, their lands. And this Jesus, for whom they left everything, is now talking about departing and leaving them. It's disorienting. It seems to them as if he's abandoning them. And finally, Jesus declares that their leader, Peter, will deny him this very night. And so for the disciples, it seems like everything's unraveling. Like their world is falling apart. It's no wonder then that Jesus begins, after unveiling these grim revelations, he begins in chapter 14, verse 1 with, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And troubled here is not something mild. It's not even something moderate. The word implies like a deep distress. It's the same word used in John chapter 12, just a couple chapters ago, where Jesus speaks of his own upcoming passion and death and says, my soul is troubled. So this is a passage that we can listen to and we can receive comfort from if our heart is roiled or disturbed or if you're highly agitated or perplexed or afraid this morning, this is a text for you. Do not, Jesus says, do not. And he speaks this right into the turbulent sea of our hearts. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, I mean, that's easier said than done, of course. I mean, how exactly are our troubled hearts to be calmed, to be serene in the midst of darkness and distress? I suspect we might ask that question a hundred times and get a hundred answers and not get the answer Jesus gives here. Because Jesus gives what seems to be a relatively simplistic answer. Believe in God. Or trust in the enemy. Trust in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Well, that doesn't seem very helpful. Now, he's going to add some content to this. But please see this. He thinks that's sufficient. Notice, 
He directs our attention to two things which are inseparable. The triune God and Jesus Christ. Notice also the high conception of who he is, of his own person. To say to first century Jews, believe in God and also believe in me standing here in front of you. That's yet another shocking claim to divinity, to deity. Notice as well, Jesus does not think vague monotheism, some sort of general gaseous belief in God, is sufficient for us. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, if we wanted to put this a bit more fully, Jesus is saying, believe in the Father, who I, the Son, am revealing in the Spirit. I believe in the Father, who I, the Son, am revealing in the Spirit. God, the triune God, as he's unveiled in Jesus, is always sufficient, indeed beyond sufficient, for the needs of our hearts. And so Jesus exhorts us. Believing here means to keep actively trusting. This is the taproot of the issue. It is, I get it, incredibly simple. But what is the basic posture, the basic stance we are to have in the midst of our troubles? It's simply this. Persistent, living, clinging to, and trusting in the triune God as revealed in Jesus. Now, here then I'm going to make two points about what is a little more specifically what it is Jesus is getting at, what he wants us to believe. They're in the back inside page of the bulletin. They're called going there and coming back. So first going there. Now remember... Jesus is comforting the hearts of his disciples here in the midst of really a number of devastating blows to them and in the midst of this encroaching violence and chaos. Believe in God, believe also in me. And the next line is, my father's house has many rooms. Rooms here means dwellings. What Jesus calls in Luke eternal dwellings, permanent dwellings. We heard in the New Testament lesson from 2 Corinthians 5, this body, this thing, this is called a tent. A tent. It's the same Greek word that's the equivalent of the, the tabernacle or the tent in the wilderness. Tent is wilderness language because this is wilderness housing. In this tent, Paul says, in this tabernacle, we groan. We feel naked, the text says, Paul says, because we long to be clothed with what? Our heavenly room or our heavenly dwelling. It echoes our Lord's text here. We're looking for a permanent dwelling so that what is mortal can be swallowed up by life. So we're in this position of being tent dwellers. We have temporary housing. Arrangements. While our inner man is being renewed, Paul says, our outer man is decaying. And so we need 
And we yearn for, or we should yearn for, immortality. A permanent dwelling in the Father's house. This is what Jesus is getting at. Now, it's important to make a distinction here. Jesus is going to heaven. He's going into that heavenly sanctuary that I spoke about on Ascension Sunday. He's going as our forerunner. He goes as our pioneer so that he might take us there. So his destiny, Jesus' destiny before the face of the Father is your destiny. His ascension is your ascension. Right? Our life, our affections, our thoughts, our treasure, our inheritance, our citizenship, our hope are in heaven. Because they're in Jesus. But Jesus is not thinking here. He's not thinking here about what happens when you die and go to heaven. It's really important to get this in this text. That's not what he's thinking about. He is preparing, prepping the heavenly sanctuary for our arrival. But we're already there. But we're there by faith. He's not thinking about now or even upon our death. He's thinking about ultimately coming there by sight in the resurrection. So when he says, in my father's house there are many rooms, he's talking about the new Jerusalem. It's a metaphor for the glorious bride of Christ as she descends from heaven at the end of the age. You can see this in Revelation 21 and 22. So, the focus of the text is the new creation and Jesus preparing a heavenly place for you, a room, because you don't have any permanent housing now. You have a tent. Or to put this differently, maybe even more simply, he's preparing for the consummation of fellowship with you in the age to come. That's what the text is saying. So let's look at the whole verse. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare, I would, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So, it's always useful to ask this question, what is Jesus doing now in heaven? Of course, he's doing a lot of things. But they're all ordered to, meaning they all serve this one thing, right? The goal of dwelling together face to face. To be inhabited by the triune God and to inhabit the triune God. So Jesus is preparing what we might call the eschatological order. The new creation. A room for you in the Father's indestructible house. Now, here's the strange thing about this. This is the first thing... The first thing Jesus wants his troubled disciples to know. I'm going and I'm readying the eternal state, your immortal life in the age to come. Now, I would guess that none or very few of us have ever used this to comfort a troubled or a grieving heart. Maybe some of you have, but I'm guessing it's not our first instinct. 
It's the first thing Jesus says after this shocking series of revelations. Our instinct should be to this, because Jesus does not think that this is pie in the sky. High theology is highly practical, and this is not floating off in the ether. For Jesus, this is comfort right now for real disciples in real darkness, in real confusion, facing real adversity in the face of betrayal and moral failure. And it should be real comfort for us now. Jesus has gone ahead into heaven to procure lodging for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's much like a child might be distressed because they don't want a parent to leave them. But the parent knows, well, I'm going and I'm going to get something wonderful for you and I'm going to bring it back. It's that simple. That's what Jesus is saying here. So the second point, that's going. The second point is coming back. Verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Now notice this. This is how we know. We know that Jesus is not speaking of something we receive upon death. He's not talking about going to heaven. He's speaking of a dwelling we receive when he comes back and takes us to himself. That's what he's talking about. So not only his going there and his preparing, but his coming back and his taking us. These two poles, the ascension and the second coming, they are the deep structure of Christian comfort in this world. The ascension of Christ and the appearing of Christ. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, I haven't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you either just because he's gone away. Quite the contrary, in fact. Quite the contrary. His going away means he's preparing the realm of glory and coming to take us there. Jesus knows then, he knows that those who believe in or trust in God, who believe in and trust also in him, he knows that believers love and long for God above all things. Right? To, to believe in is to yearn for. To love is to yearn. And indeed, God is the one who's placed eternity in our hearts. Such that only eternal communion in eternal dwellings can satisfy those hearts. There are many, many, many wonderful goods short of that. That's true. There are many natural goods in life, marriage, family, children, friends, vocations. And all those goods can be consecrated unto God's service. But they are not heavenly ends in themselves, nor are they the goal of our calling. God is the goal of our calling. He is our inheritance, our portion forever. And so the end in view here in this text is supernatural. And you were made chiefly for it. Even if we have a way of hiding this from ourselves in the midst of our busyness. Sometimes you have to scratch a little bit to see how deeply you're made for this. C.S. Lewis expresses this beautifully. He says this. He says, there have been times 
when I think we do not desire heaven? Who hasn't felt like that? There have been times when I think we don't desire heaven. But he says, more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is, he says, the secret signature of each soul. He goes on and says it's an unappeasable want. It's the thing, he says, we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work. And which we will still desire, he says, on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. Lewis is saying really only what the Christian tradition has always said. That Christians have an inconsolable longing for heaven. Not just a heaven would be a nice thing, isn't it fantastic? It's an unappeasable want for the vision, for the reunion in this text. It's deep and it's real even though it's always often covered up and muted. It is buried, I've mentioned this before, it is buried in every single prayer we pray. Right? You pray for someone who's sick. You want them to be healed. But they're going to get sick again. And eventually they're going to die. So what are you praying for? You're praying ultimately for the person to be placed beyond sin and death. Beyond any kind of threat. Beyond any kind of probation. Right? Scratch underneath the surface of all the ordinary prayers of the Christian life. Right? And you realize just, just pulsating right under that surface is a prayer for this reunion. You pray for your children to be safe. You pray for your children to have grace. You pray for your children to follow the Lord, but they're going to suffer and they're going to die. So what are you really praying for? Right? You're praying for this unappeasable want. The unappeasable want. So... Grace does nothing for us if it doesn't create this longing. Jesus is speaking to that longing here. He thinks it provides the deepest comfort. It's like the gospel in general. It dislodges and displaces us and our affections before it reorients us. It slays before it resurrects. But we have to be willing to undergo this displacement. If we're not, then Jesus is saying to us in the midst of our agony, I'm going away. I'm preparing a place. And I'll come back and take you to that place. That's not going to be much comfort. We're going to say, what good does that do for me today? But Lewis is right. right? Rest assured, Jesus is speaking to what Lewis called the secret signature of every soul. It is very difficult to find the words to communicate this or to overstate the thrust of the New Testament here, the accent that the New Testament lays here. There are, get this, there are 318 allusions or direct references to our Lord's second coming in the New Testament. 318. And this is one of them. And it's right at the heart of our comfort right now. But as I mentioned, it's not simply longing for the second coming. 
If you put it that way, that's perfectly fine. But it can obscure something. We're longing for the one who is coming. Right? That's the issue of our hearts here. That's why we yearn for this, because we love Jesus and there's no love without longing. Nobody says, my beloved spouse is far away. Mine happens to be in Buffalo today, actually. And I do miss her, right? But I don't say, hey, you know, I hope she stays out there a really long time. I'm happy that she's eventually coming back, you know? But longing means you want the appearing now, right? That's how it is for Jesus. It is not Christian love to say, oh, Jesus is out there and he's going to come back. That's great. But I don't want him to come back anytime really soon, right? Jesus fixes this thought uppermost in the disciples' minds, and the text of the New Testament places it before us 318 times. I will come back, he says, and now notice how beautiful this is, and how intimate and tender. I will come back, and I will take you also to be with me where I am. Now, these are Jesus' last words. He's going to say almost that exact same thing again. Later in this farewell discourse, this is a sounding or a probing of the deepest recesses of our Lord's heart. He wants you to be with him where he is in the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, to which he returns after the ascension. He makes it clear that that's his deepest desire in this high priestly prayer, which comes a little bit later. He wants us to be with him where he is. Of course, that's true in a real way now. We're with Jesus and he's with us. But it's not true in fullness. It's true by faith and not by sight. It's true in a mode that belongs to this age, faith, not in the mode that belongs to the next age, sight. And so we're glad to be in Christ. But we do want more because we were made for more. Because the Spirit causes us to desire more. And because Jesus' deepest yearning over you is for him to have unbroken, uninterrupted, face-to-face communion with you. That's how much God loves you in Christ. Beyond all threat of sin and death. So he goes away. He prepares the glorious dwelling And upon his return, he takes us to be with himself. This is the consummation of the covenant, what is unveiled in Revelation 21. At the end of the Bible, it says this, his servants shall see his face. This same John in his first epistle says, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the narrative of gospel comfort, of the deepest comfort in the gospel. Now, this is, of course, not everything Jesus says. Jesus has a lot more, a lot more to say, even in this discourse, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll see it in the weeks to come. He certainly does not expect his disciples just to stare up into the sky. He will send the Spirit. The Spirit will empower the church to labor in the world. Indeed, to labor and work mightily. Indeed, the Spirit will enable us to do greater works than Jesus did, he says. 
We'll discuss that, Lord willing, next week. It's in the next part of chapter 14. But for now, for now, please note how Jesus starts comforting his disciples. He does not have a long chain of comforts that end in the second coming. He doesn't end with the second coming. He starts with it. Paul does this all the time, too. Jesus does not end with the second coming. It's not like, oh, yeah, and by the way, after all these other comforts, there's this wonderful comfort way out there. He's never, he never does that. Neither does Paul. They take that thing and they yank it in and place it right on top of your life. Or better, he talks about the ascension and the second coming. Aquinas has this wonderful statement where he says that the desire for the end is the cause of desiring everything else which is for the sake of the end. The desire for the end is the cause of desiring everything else which is for the sake of the end. That's what I mean when I say all other Christian desires are ordered to this desire, the desire of the end. The, the, The desire of the end shapes every desire today. Now I know... Believe me, I know, as a, as a frail human being, these things are hard to speak of. They sound so far off. They sound so unreal and lacking in concrete, practical counsel. But I don't think it's because they are unreal. I think it's more because they're unfathomably real, and we walk around in the realm of dreams and delusions. So unfathomably real are these things that Paul says, no eye has seen. So there's a sense in which this should be strange to us, right? There's a sense in which we're called to this and yet it's alien. Because Paul says, no eye has seen it. No ear has heard it. It hasn't even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared. Notice that word prepared in Paul. That's the same word Jesus uses in this text. I'm going to prepare a room for you. Nobody knows. We don't have any way to assimilate this. But it's so real that Jesus has told us about it. And it's so incomprehensibly glorious that Jesus thinks his going, his preparing, and his coming are the chief part of our comfort. So I'm going to conclude with two two points. We'll call them comfort and action. Comfort and action. So the first one's the comfort again. So let me, let me reiterate. What if the disciples faced? Here's what they faced. Betrayal, leaving or departure or abandonment. And third, in Peter's case, denial or moral failure. Now, beloved, I'm going to guess that betrayal, leavings and partings, abandonment and loss... And our own or other people's moral failures touch down and leave some pretty big scars in most of our lives. So Jesus talks to you. Just as he spoke to the disciples and he says, do not let your heart be troubled. I have gone to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you personally to be with me. 
Thus, believe in God and in Jesus. Keep believing, keep trusting. If it appears that he's abandoned you or left, it is not the case. Just like it is for the child who can't understand why the parent has gone away. It is not the case. Transform Christ has abandoned and forsaken me. I don't feel him near to me anymore in my life. Transform that into he's preparing a glorious place for me. He's went away. He will come to you. Second is action. This orientation does not and cannot produce idleness. It produces a certain kind of person who, having been dislodged, acts a certain way in this age. You might say someone who acts with the right proportion and the right order. Someone who receives the things of this age with a sort of receptive, open-handed gratitude, but is not a grasper or a clinger or a striver, but one who holds the goods of this age lightly with openness, one who grasps and clings to Christ and the gospel and his risen coming glory. Right? This is the kind of person this text is trying to create, and that person acts in the world in a certain kind of way. Two things to see here about this action. First, prayer. Prayer is the chief action. It is the principal part, John Calvin says, of Christian piety is prayer. And the Aramaic prayer, Maranatha, you can see it in 1 Corinthians 16, it comes from the very earliest days of the Christian community. We know that because it's in Aramaic. And it means, come, Lord, or our Lord, come. And that same prayer, same prayer in Greek, concludes the New Testament. After the new heavens and new earth descend in Revelation 22, the last prayer of the Bible is, come, Lord Jesus. The prayer Jesus gave us, almost every apostolic prayer, the prayer of the martyrs in heaven, they all have this orientation. They are looking for that day. Some of you know I've said from the pulpit before that praying for the resurrection of the dead should be the first thing on your to-do list every day. Well, I have a, a daughter in Tennessee who listens to my sermons, apparently. And she just sent me a, a little belated birthday gift. It's a stack of these, like, uh, what do you call them, post-it notes? I brought one with me, so I wouldn't forget. And it says on the top, things to do. And she sent this to me. And and she had it custom-made. Things to do. And then there's a line of things to do, and you can check them all off. But right under things to do, it says, pray for the resurrection of the dead. So that her father would would, would, would practice what he preached. Right? So that he would start every day by looking at this and remembering, pray for the resurrection of the dead. So it's at the top of my to-do list. But I did need the reminder, I must confess. I needed the reminder. So I asked the question, right? have you looked up at the sky recently and prayed for Jesus to tear it open? 
and to appear in glory with the saints and to take you to be with him? Because that's what the martyrs are praying for. Beloved, if that hasn't happened, something is fundamentally wrong with our prayer lives. We're we're getting swamped. Our orientation gets skewed. This is not one prayer among others. The end orders all the desires to the end, as Aquinas said. This is the prayer by which all other prayers are ordered properly and set in their right frame. So that's the first part of acting. But here, I want to say one more thing. The second thing under action is this. And here I want to talk about labor or service or ministry. Paul is radically oriented to the resurrection and to the age to come. Right? That, I think, goes without saying. He'd rather depart and be with Christ than to remain in this age because he says not only is it better, it's far better. He grasps in a penetrating way on every paragraph of his letters this orientation that Jesus is teaching here. And there are many reasons for this. But he also had advantages which none of us had. Not only did he see the risen Jesus... But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that he was lifted up into the third heaven, into paradise itself. He said he heard things which cannot be told. He saw things that cannot be uttered. He says, surpassingly, great revelations were given to him. None of this, for Paul, created inaction or retreat. Quite the contrary. Paul labors out of this perspective. He taught out of it. He prayed out of it. He preached out of it. He endured an unspeakable list of hardships out of it, out of this orientation, which was all the way down in his bones. Crucifixion with Jesus displaces a person from this age, and resurrection with Jesus plants a person in heaven, and such people paradoxically, mysteriously, are warriors in the earth. They are ambassadors of heaven. They labor and they build. This is our calling. There's a great paradox, I think, to grasp here. The more heavenly we are, the more earthly fruit and goodness we bring. Jesus and Paul are the supreme examples of this. In one sense, Christians are much like their God. You know, God is transcendent. He's high. He's infinitely above all things. He's exalted, so exalted that all the nations, he says, are nothing and less than nothing to me. They're like the dust on the scale. He says, you just wipe off all the nations. They're nothing. I'm the infinite transcendent God. But because he is that infinite transcendent God, he is at the same time, not only with no conflict, but as the other side of that, as implied in that, he is near, mighty to save, close. Right? There's There's no pitting here. The more transcendent God is, the more near he is to you. The more heavenly you are and displaced, the more good and fruit you can bear in the earth. We pray and we act under these twin arches of the ascension and the second coming. The going, the preparing, and the coming to take us to be with him. Covered by those arches, your heart troubled Our toiling, fretful, wounded hearts must hear this. This text. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. Amen.